This is Yusai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. In this episode of Let's Talk, I had the opportunity to speak to my hero Lisa Ling, who has been an incredible inspiration for many Asian Americans in media. Also, Padma Lakshmi has created a new show, Taste the Nation. She joins me to share how she created this new series, which uses food as a vehicle to celebrate immigrants in our culture. As a award-winning journalist and a powerful presence for Asian American community, Lisa Ling has always been an inspiration to me, as well as her broad audience. Her groundbreaking series on CNN, This Is Life. Offers a sensitive and objective look at people, often marginalized, whose stories are rarely told with such empathy and non-judgment. She graciously took the time to discuss her journey and offer her optimistic perspective on where we stand at this pivotal moment in history. Often, when we meet our heroes, they fail to meet our expectations. But Lisa exceeded everything I have ever imagined. She's generous, warm, and articulate. This conversation was completely insightful about the champion she has become for Asian Americans and for the marginalized across the country. I first encountered Lisa on her program, Channel One News, where she was an early Asian American representation that I rarely found in media. We begin our conversation on the topic of. Asian identity. I remember watching this footage of you and Anderson Cooper at Channel One, and it was very incredible for me watching at that time. And I was very oblivious about Asian culture because I think we were young. We pushed that away from us. We were trying to, we're trying to blend in as much as we can. And as we get mature, we know that blending in doesn't solve any problems. You actually want to stand out. I love that you have been full in celebration of, of Asian Pacific Heritage Month. There really is so much to celebrate. You know, the Asian community, so incredibly diverse. Wherever you are from in Asia or wherever your, your ancestors derive from, um, we're talking about the most rich histories and culture. And so I so appreciate you celebrating Asian culture. But I think it's also really important for us Asian Americans to never forget that while we may have been born in this country and feel as American as anyone else, American history hasn't always been kind to Asian people. Japanese Americans were the only ethnic group to ever be forced to live in internment camps throughout World War II. I mean, when you think about that now, it's like unfathomable. Their ethnic group of people were forced to live in internment camps. And the sad reality is that these people lost everything. They lost their businesses, their homes. And then when they were finally released, they just kind of went back into society and didn't, they didn't raise their voices until much, much later. We can't do that. We have to be vocal. We have to be vocal when there are, there are injustices being perpetrated on us and to all communities. We have to band together to speak out against those injustices and, and demand our seat at the table as Americans. But you celebrate Asian culture so much. I know you're teaching your kids Mandarin as well. You know, do you ever feel this thing we call the Asian guilt? 
where you go, mom and daddy, grandpa and grandma worked their way so hard to come to this country. Therefore, I need to do the same and I need to teach my next generation to follow through. I certainly do put pressure on my kids. I grew up really not, I really hated being Chinese. I really hated being Asian because I grew up in a community like in Sacramento where there were very few Asian people. I was made fun of a lot. Um, my, you know, I was called Risa Ring on a daily basis because I didn't look like anyone who lived around me, right? But I never felt totally American. Because I couldn't really relate to them, I was consistently reminded of my differences. Our, our American values are ingrained in us, but yet we come from cultures that are incredibly storied and rich. Um, and that helped me sort of get over that identity crisis. And now it's so important for me to expose my own kids to as, as much diversity as possible. Um, I don't live currently in the most diverse uh, part of Los Angeles, but um, because of that, I try intentionally to expose my kids to as much diversity as I can. My eldest daughter is seven years old, and she knows about internment camp. She can recite passages from MLK's speeches. When I was talking to her about, you know, the history of racism in this country and police brutality, and, and to have the discussion that historically people have not been treated fairly. And I remember once talking to her about racism in, in this country. We were talking about MLK. She said, well, yellow people, our people, they haven't experienced anything like that. Have they? I said to her, what Asian people in America have experienced cannot compare to what African Americans have experienced in this country. Like, there's absolutely no comparison. But you need to know that his has not been kind to Asians. And it's something that I think all Asians just always need to retain back of their mind. Because to me, it's something that is a really grounding force in my life. The story of Lisa's family echoes my own and is such a ubiquitous story for immigrants to the United States. So many immigrant families share a common thread of sacrifice and survival upon coming to America to pursue opportunity. My own family arrived from Taiwan to Terry Hill, Indiana, and due to the language barrier, the only jobs available were in kitchens. My father worked in my uncle's Chinese restaurant, even though he had left a successful career as a photographer. I just find that we all have this common thread that as immigrants, you do what you have to do. doesn't matter what your educational background is. It's about providing and about working really, really hard to provide for your family. When we start looking to each other, when we can find each other looking alike, we find similarity historically as well. And I remember watching an episode that you did pretty early on in This Is Live that you interview Chinese in America. And I remember, oh, I'm going to really relate to this story. Then I start watching and I didn't relate to any of it because they were the richest Asian people in the world. But however, there was a moment you were sharing with your aunt that you were talking about your grandfather, that he had NYU degree, MBA from University of Colorado, and yet he could not find work. Then he opened a Chinese restaurant, the only one in that town. Before the communists took over in China, the few Chinese able to um, pursue higher education in the U.S. So he had, uh, you know, an MBA. Finally, 
uh, escaped from China to come to the United States in, in 1948, he could not be hired in California for a job in finance um, because he was Chinese. And so my grandmother, who, who had a music degree from Cambridge, ended up carrying her family on her back teaching piano until they could generate enough money to open the first Chinese restaurant in Folsom, California. And that's the story for so many Asian immigrants. In so many ways, Chinese restaurants, Asian restaurants have become as ubiquitous as McDonald's. Restaurants are a path forward in achieving the American dream. And even though many people who pursue that path who are immigrants don't have the pedigree that my grandfather did, it gave him and my grandmother an opportunity to achieve a little bit of the American dream. I don't know that they actually achieved it because they had a very, very hard life here, um, but they were able to have a decent living. Lisa started her career at an early age and has had an incredibly impactful career in journalism. She has fearlessly pressed the boundaries to discuss topics often taboo in American culture, and especially from the point of view as an Asian American, where these discussions are even more rare. She has given voice to the LGBTQ community. These stories are always approached with compassion and objectivity. I was lucky. I got hired to be a reporter for a show that was seen in schools across the country called Channel One News. It was a news broadcast. Anderson Cooper was one of my colleagues on that show. I didn't grow a lot of money. We didn't get a, a, an opportunity to travel much when I was a kid. This show sent me all over the world to cover stories. And most eye-opening experience I could have ever dreamt of. And it, it not only made me a smarter person, it made me a more well-rounded person and a more compassionate person. And that desire to want to communicate stories to a bigger audience. Um, so many things that I saw, I, I recognize, like, I'm seeing these things for a reason. I, it, I felt it was incumbent upon me to try and communicate what I was seeing. And I feel as defiant as ever about that kind of storytelling, even though I don't do as much global storytelling. As a young person, I recognize the importance of being able to see things with my own eyes, but also sharing them. My show that I executive produced and host on CNN, um, This Is Life, is really not very different from the work that I was doing at Channel One 20, oh my God, 20 some years ago. I just, I'm just aging myself. The goal is to try and allow people to better understand their fellow humans. As human beings, we have just as much right to our services in our country. We are just as much a global citizen as anyone else. But for some reason, some cultures, right, some races have been designated superior over others. We have this really unique opportunity. It's almost like the universe is telling us right now that we come together, right? We better hold each other's hand through this or I'm afraid of what the consequences of all of this could be. And I don't have hope that people um, are heeding all of this and will come together and, and stand up holding hands against injustices toward our fellow, our fellow human. You cover a lot of subjects that for me was fascinating because they were very um, atypical for Asian culture. You were touching on every subject matter that I think 
is what Asian mom said we'll never talk about. How do you find those stories and why do they fascinate you? Oh, one of the proudest moments in my entire career was when Exodus International, which was the largest ex-gay organization in the world. This was an organization that practiced conversion therapy and tried to convert people who, who thought they were gay to straight. All in the name of God, by the way. And I interviewed the former head of it. And I asked him, you know, if, if God is such a loving God, then do you think you will see gay Christians in heaven? And he couldn't really answer the question. He kind of stumbled and he, he just was a bit of a, at a loss for words. I mean, I, I'm surprised no one had ever asked him that question before. Maybe because he was doing it in front of a television audience. I don't know. But a couple of years later, he called me to tell me I'm shutting the whole organization down. If my God, the God that I believe in, is that loving God that I profess that he is, of course he's going to love and accept people, whoever they are, whatever their sexual orientation is. To this day, it truly was one of the proudest moments of my life. And in fact, so many of those people who worked for Exodus are some of the most incredible advocates now for gay rights. It's like, it's amazing. Because it's it's true. I mean, you know, especially those gay Christians, like if you're God, if you believe in this God that loves you unconditionally, right, then he or she will love you no matter who you are. And if you are the if you are the perfect creation, right, of God's, then he will love you no matter who you are. I interviewed a who are gender fluid a couple of years ago for This Is Life. That was also one of my favorite episodes. And, you know, so one of the reasons why I love doing the kind of work that I do is I am forced to think about my own preconceived ideas. I interviewed a man named Steve, who spent his whole life living as a man, but when he was a, a little kid, would sneak into his mom's closet to wear her clothes. And he always thought it was sinful behavior. And so he's actually a professor in the Bay Area and married with a child. His wife caught him wearing her clothes and wearing her makeup. It was time to come out. His wife said to me, like, I love him for who he is and has still stayed with him and still loves him. I mean, I, I know it's hard for her, right? I know it's hard for her because it because immediately she's like, what does that mean for me? Is he gonna leave me? Because she loves him. Just wanted him to be happy in his own skin. Looked like the average Joe guy, and he put on a dress. He put on makeup and I see this, almost this twinkle in his eye. Like he just, he felt beautiful. He felt, um, he felt like himself. If you were able to go into a story without judgments, but when you exit that story, what do you take with you and how does that influence you? If you have no judgments, how do you grow from that? So we all have judgment. You know, I try really, really hard to be as non-judgmental. But we are products of our environment. And so we've been predisposed feelings about people or about a culture or what have you. It's that little opening, that little part of your brain that allows you to say, let me just think about this person's perspective. Let me just try for a few moments to just pause and take my own thoughts and judgments out of this and just listen. That is 
one of the most important skills that you could ever have. Hear someone's story, whether whether he or she is a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, you know, someone who, who, who couldn't be more different from you, you will start to understand him or her better. Inevitable. And so that's what I've always tried to do. I wish and hope that we can all start to see each other, not as someone who has different color skin. <laughs> I mean, it's unavoidable. You have to recognize that, but to really recognize people for the humans that they are. What you just said reminded me of this episode that where you immerse yourself into the story so much that you became physically naked. So share that with people because I, I cannot do justice. It was so incredible. That was an episode that we did about sexual healing. You know, so many of us, particularly Asians, right? We hang ups about sex. We don't talk about it openly. It never communicated to us. It was never something that was conveyed to be pleasurable. It was always like you had to sort of talk about it privately. We live in such a puritanical culture. And as a result, I think that we... We start to have so many body images and we, we put up these blocks to the idea of being a free sexual being, right? In this um, process of doing this piece about sexual healing, I met this Tantra expert who said, if you have any deficiencies in your sex life, right? You're not having sex with your partner. You may have had a traumatizing experience. If you have experienced rejection, if your parents were divorced, whatever it is, if you have any blockage to your sexuality, it affects every aspect of your life, your personal relationships, your job, because your sexuality is innate within you. And so I was profiling this young man who had cerebral palsy. You know what cerebral palsy does to your body. You know, it, you become severely disfigured. This young man went to a therapist to learn how to embrace his, himself, his body, his sexuality. And there was an exercise where he and the therapist become completely naked. They take off all their clothes and they look at their bodies and talk about all the things they like and what they don't like about their bodies. And I watched this young man who was totally naked with cerebral palsy. And as I watched him talk about the things that he likes about his body that he was proud of, I thought to myself, then why am I so ashamed of my own body? And it was not my intention when I woke up that morning to do what I did, but I said, I need to take off all my clothes right now and stand alongside you and stand right next to you because there is no reason why I should feel ashamed of my body because this is my body. This is the body that I was born with. And it was one of the most terrifying but liberating things that I have done. Um, my cameraman and my sound man were like, okay. <laughs> Lisa and I in our talk with a hope for the future. As we see the racial division exposed in this country and conflicts within government, Lisa sees a shift at the grassroots level and stresses the importance of unity and dignity of all people. You have been such a resounding voice as activism for that throughout your entire career. How do you see that we're gonna get through this? 
the seeds of racism that have been sown throughout this crisis for Asian people, but for communities of color, particularly the African-American community, these systematic injustices are being magnified. And what we've seen has been horrifying. But what I keep thinking about is how these kinds of incidences, uh, excessive force by, by law enforcement, these things have been happening for generations. It's just now people are empowered with cell phone video to be able to expose it to the world. There's so much tension in the air, right? There's so much vitriol. There's so much hostility. And the sad thing about all of this is that we're so lacking in leadership. I think right now we, as a culture, are just so hungry for leadership and for people to inspire us to do better and to be better. We're seeing so much the hostility stemming from the highest levels of government and almost giving license to attacks and abuse. Yes, I've had an incredibly heavy heart, but my hope is that something tangible comes from this. On the one hand, while I have been so aghast and, and heartsick and appalled by so many of the videos of police brutality, I've also seen this overwhelming outpouring of support from people of all different ethnicities advocating for people of color, advocating for change. And, and that is giving me hope. You know, it's, it, we, we, I'm, I'm looking at this time right now, and this is a defining moment. It may be the most defining moment, certainly of this generation. And we're going to think back on this time. We're going to think about like what the role that we, we play, right? Whether we spoke out for, for, for justice, for the things for right, or if we kind of crawled away into the corner. We're going to remember this time, and we're going to tell this story to our kids and to, to younger generations. And they're going to ask us. Well, where did you come down on this? And I know that I don't want to say, well, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I know that for my own kids, I want to be able to look them in the eyes and say to them, I stood for my fellow humans. Padma Lakshmi is a unique voice in a culinary world. But it's her activism and humanity which has earned her respect and admiration in the media. As the executive producer of Top Chef, she has created a platform for inclusion, bringing perspectives and opportunities for many ethnicities, women, and the LGBTQ community to a field traditionally dominated by men. As an immigrant, woman of color, and champion for diversity, Patma, with her producing partner, has created the show Taste the Nation for Hulu, which spotlights immigrants who are unsung culinary heroes throughout America. I wanted to know what ignited her passion to create and tell their stories. I'm so happy that you can join me today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking me on. When I saw the preview of Taste the Nation, I had to reach out to you because the show resonates so much with me as an immigrant. It's so close to my heart. And I want you to share a little bit with everyone. How did the show 
came about? You know, I started working on immigrant rights with the ACLU and, what, you know, I'm not an attorney. So whenever I would speak on their behalf, I would always refer to my own personal immigrant story. I came here from India when I was four. And after a while, I felt like I needed new material. So I started just befriending the, the attorneys at the ACLU and asking them questions and you know, meeting other people and looking at other immigrants. And it really interested me. And there was so much rhetoric coming out of Washington that was negative with the Muslim ban, with the family and child separation at the border. And I just felt like I had to do something, which is why I got involved with the ACLU. But in the process of finding all that out, I thought, I want to do something that's positive and that shows the humanity of all of us immigrants, because we've really built this country. Immigration is a good thing. I'm not saying that it should be free flowing and there should be no regulation. I'm not saying that. But what I want to recognize is that, you know, this country was built by waves and waves and waves of different immigrants from all over the world over the years. And so I wanted to look at that and I wanted to look at that through the lens of food because it's a neutral topic. A lot of these communities are very insular and with good reason. They don't want to talk to the media. At the same time, they've not really been represented well by the mainstream media. So I thought that food was a good entree to talking about other deeper, very important things. And that's really how the show came about. America's food culture has come from other countries. And global food culture has been preserved by the women and mothers who are the custodians of that culture. Pamela and I spoke about her perspective on what we know as American food. What I love that you bought the spectrum of all the food and you make sure everybody knew hot dog is not just American food. Yeah, totally. Even, you know, that saying of apple pie as American as apple pie, not one ingredient in apple pie is from North America. It's not indigenous to here. Not even the apples, not the lard, not the flour, not the cinnamon, none of it. We've just decided. It's very arbitrary. And it's very possible that in a hundred years, pad thai will be all American. I think that the future of food like the past of American food, lies with immigrant culture. That's, mm. that's who brings it forth. And then, you know, of course we Americanize it, but even Thai people or Indian people, you know, for our mothers and grandmothers, they could not find the ingredients that they wanted here. So when you talk to those ladies in the Thai episode, how could you find green papaya? And they said, we couldn't find green papaya. We'll just make it with green apple. But who's going to tell that grandmother that that's not authentic? You know, it's authentic to her. So I love this transformation that traditional food from different countries goes through just by way of necessity when it comes to this country. Also, you know, both parents are usually working in these immigrant households. So you also have to adapt the recipes to make it possible to cook quickly on a weeknight for your family, because also the education, you have to do the homework. You know, it's not easy. Emma and I both share growing up in Southern California's melting pot. Being exposed to a rich food culture, where Mexican stalls shared space with noodle dishes and barbecues in thriving local Filipino and Korean communities. I asked her about what it was like growing up in the Los Angeles suburb of La Puente. 
and how this shaped and formed her journey and her views of inclusion as she entered the world of modeling and mainstream media. I know you grew up in La Puente, which is really close to me, actually. I went to school in Walnut, so we're neighbors. Yeah, I grew up in La Puente. There were not many Indians, you know, there in the 80s. People would look at me and they would say, maybe she's Mexican, but then I certainly didn't have a Mexican name, nor did I speak Spanish at the time. So it was hard. And, but I grew up with a lot of immigrants. I mean, most of the people that I went to school with were either Mexican or Filipino. I had a lot of Asians, Korean, also Chinese, and a lot of Black kids. And it got progressively more POC from my freshman year to my junior year and senior year. Um, but no Indian. And how did that influence you as you develop into modeling and crossing over to hosting? And, and to me, you broke the glass ceiling when you positioned yourself as executive producer on Top Chef and the host. Because I know that it doesn't matter what color you are, that's in the spectrum. It's always a constant battle for inclusion in this business. Sure. I mean, it was really hard. You know, when I started doing what I was doing on the Food Network way before I even started with Top Chef, I'm talking 20 years ago, it was really hard because I didn't see anybody who looked like me. There was not a single Indian that I can think of who was on TV. And so I had a lot of people I looked up to, but they were men or they were different ethnicities of women. But I think it makes a big difference to see representation on TV or in magazines. And I also have a big scar on my arm, so I never thought that I could really model. But it was the grunge period and tattoos started coming in and Helmut Newton found me. And that's how I did more than be a fit model. But um, I saw myself as attractive. I knew I was attractive, but I never saw myself on the caliber with all those white girls like Cindy and Claudia and Christy, you know, or Karen Mulder, those kind of people. So like that was the generation I was in. And I was just feeling lucky to be able to pay off my college loans. You know, I also started late after I graduated. Um, I mean, I started my last semester when I was studying abroad in Spain. And that was the first time I really felt beautiful. Like I had to go mm. away out of America I had to go to Europe to really feel like, oh, wow, you know, people really like the way I look and they actually like it because I'm dark. Also, there's so much colorism in Indian culture. And, you know, my grandmother would always say, like, don't go in the sun, take an umbrella or, you know, you'll get too dark or whatever. And so that really does a number on a girl's self-esteem. I'm sure that it affected me. I didn't I just didn't expect to do that well. It was just a matter of making a living. I was writing a little bit. I was auditioning for acting roles. I was still doing the occasional catalog or modeling job. I had a syndicated column for the New York Times. I had a style column in Harper's Bazaar. And all of these things combined made a living, you know. And eventually I did the cookbook just on a fluke because everyone wanted to know what a model eats. I had to gain 20 pounds for my first movie. And so I always loved to cook and I started taking the fat out of recipes. You know, those mm. days without fat was bad. 
And so somehow that got to somebody and they're like, oh, would you like to do a cookbook? And I said, you know, it's always been a fantasy of mine to do a cookbook because I love cookbooks. I've always collected them. And that's really how my career in food started. It started by accident. I really didn't take the food thing more seriously than a very elevated hobby. You know, I knew I was a good cook. But other than that, like, I never thought about it as a career. But that's why I always tell young people, like, push against the open door. Never Mm -hmm. say no to an opportunity because you never know where it's going to lead you or who you're going to meet. Who would have known that I would find success in food? Mothers of the world serve as the custodians of food culture and keepers of tradition, which is why it is so important to honor these women and their impact on our lives. I've learned so much from my own mother and aunties about Taiwanese food, and I was inspired to see Padma bring her mom to join her on Taste the Nation. We talked about how she approached the Indian episode. You have been on Top Chef for a long, long time. And such an amazing contrast that from fine dining, eating for probably the last 10 years to eating pack rats. I love the the dichotomy of it. I love the contrast of it. And I love that you really embedded yourself into these stories and journeys. And and you had your mom on the show. Uh, That was so, so special. What was it like for you to have her with you? And was she receptive when you asked her to join the show? I didn't ask her until the week before, you know, because I didn't want to discuss too much with my mom. So I just said, Mom, I'm taping this show, this, um, you know, Indian episode. She obviously knew about this show for a long time. And I said, we're doing it in Jackson Heights. And I said, I think it would be really nice if you were on the show. Can I fly you to New York? Because she lives in Los Angeles. And I said, I really want you on. And I kind of just didn't give her any choice. I just said it like, you know, I would really like you to do this, which is how my family talks to each other anyway. One thing I have to say is in Indian culture, like family is front and center and you always help your family out, you know, to the point of excruciation, you know, like I just was like, I need you to do this. And she was happy to do it. I was less involved with the Indian episode as as a producer than I was with the other episodes, only because I purposely let my showrunner lead that one even, you know, a little more than normal because I didn't feel I could be objective about it. I really had a lot of reservations about having my daughter Krishna on screen. Mm -hmm. You know, you see my home, you see my kitchen. It's a very um, vulnerable making episode for me. And so I just told my showrunner, like, you're going to have to lead this because I didn't want it to be so self-absorbed. I was scared that people would be like, oh, who did you think she is? When I saw your mom on the show, it it brought back memory because I did a cooking show in Taiwan and I did not tell Mm -hmm. my mother either. I used my brother to trick her. And it was like the day before I'm all, by the way, I kind of knew you on the show because it's a family episode and she was petrified. (laughs) She was petrified. Your mom was amazing because she was, to me, she was so authentic. Like basically she's like, you're going to eat this eat this now, and we're buying this. And I saw on your face, just like, Mom, I don't like those. I know everybody turns into the 12-year-old self when they get around their mom. I just, I hate 
uh, karela, which is what that is. It's bitter gourd. And it's really, really good for you. It has a ton of antioxidants and vitamins. I still hate it. I, you know, I've never liked it. I was forced to eat it as a child. So, you know, we all have those kind of things. And we all have this like mortifying moment when our friends come over and there's some funky smelling food that our American or white classmates aren't used to. And you're always cringing. I think that kind of PTSD is always there a little bit, even as you grow up. You know, when you open your lunchbox and it stinks of curry. Oh my <laughs> like, God. Yeah, what is that? Those days. But have you had it with bitter gore with minced pork and black beans? No, but I imagine that the black bean would like bury the taste of the bitter gourd. So that might be the way that I can eat it. I'll have to look. Well, I'm going to have to prepare for you when I see you because that's a traditional Taiwanese dish. And we grew up hating as well. Definitely becomes a acquired taste, but and you begin to love it. And, and because that's what you do, right? If we have a dish in Taiwan called stinky tofu, and I don't know you ever had that before. It is fermented. And when you walk by, it literally smells like sewage. But for whatever reason, yeah. our Taiwanese palace, we just absolutely love them. <laughs> yeah. A number of foods that you kind of just have to grow up with, you know, and every culture has them. And I don't know if I've had that. I mean, I've had fermented tofu and I remember it being strong, but I don't remember it smelling that funky. Oh, they're funky. It's one food that Andrew Zimmer will not eat with all the crazy food that he eats. That one he didn't like. <laughs> I'm like, what? I'll have to look out for it. If he won't eat it, I will. I eat a lot of crazy things, but this is different. You at Apache Reservation and you're hunting for your meal. Let's walk us through this process. I, you know, I had never been on a Native American reservation before, and I was incredibly honored to be there. And I was with a woman named Twyla Casador, who is so knowledgeable, and she has such a beautiful, deep spirit about her. I'm not a very new agey person. I'm very, like, maybe because I'm Indian, I really don't like all that Om Shanti stuff. Like, it makes me cringe when... But she, to me, felt like the real deal. Mm -hmm. You know, she just had such a grounded, beautiful, sage-like disposition and aura around her. When I looked out at that landscape, all I saw was a desert with cactus and some shrubs. What she knows and sees is there are wild onions in the ground. And I was like, where do you see a wild onion? And then when she points it out, I'm like, wow, now I could do it. Luckily, she got the pack rat without me because you have to boil it and stuff and skin it. And so I was thankfully not part of that process. Um, and I was really nervous. I mean, I was raised a vegetarian because right. we're Hindu and I'm still a little squeamish about a lot of non-vegetarian things. So pack rat was like way beyond my comfort zone. So for those of you guys, if you're curious how to make pack rat, the show does give you a really important takeaway. When it's done, yeah. the tail falls off. <laughs> so in case you're making... Right. Isn't that great? It's like that little thermometer in the turkey that comes out. Even in today's progressive climate, there's still so much bias in media for women and people of color. With her impressive pedigree on Top Chef, Padma shared the challenges she faced producing her own show, Taste the Nation. When you start shopping your show, 
did you still find that being a woman and being a woman of color and diverse, it was hard to penetrate the industry? Definitely. Listen, I've been on TV a long time. Okay, I've been on TV for 14 years. I've been nominated for nine Emmy Awards. Yet it's taken me this long to be able to get my own show, which is my material. You know, like obviously I'm the host of Top Chef, but that show was fully formed. I didn't create that show. But this show is completely for me. And so and my producing partner, David, who's wonderful. But it took me this long. Like, I'm a brown woman working in a white man's world. And so I'm not only brown, I'm female. So there's gender politics with that. You know, you even hear big, big actresses like Reese Witherspoon, who are so talented and say, you know, we have trouble finding juicy roles. So like, you can imagine how the us brown and black girls feel. And so it was really important for me to do this show because the people that you see, those are the people I grew up with. Those are those are the people that we went to school with in Hacienda Heights, whether they were Peruvian or Thai or whatever. And those people interest me. I want to say that, like, those are, those are the people that are my inspiration. And I never see those people unless they're, like, bodega owners, right? So, like, I don't... I, I don't want to see them like that. I want to see them how they are, like really themselves, not a white person's interpretation of them. And and so the show was really important for me to do as a rebuttal to all of the hate that's coming out of the Oval Office. I wanted to do something to say, hey, you know, stop talking about us in such a negative, untrue fashion, because we make the economy go, we contribute to the music, the arts, the film, the food of this country, and we are willing to do the hard work and pay it forward. So I just wanted to show that. I didn't want to say that because I had been saying that for a long time in, in you know, op-ed pages and also in speeches for the ACLU and stuff. I wanted to show it. And I wanted the people whose stories I was trying to talk about to tell their own story in the way that they saw fit. And, and I'm really happy that I got to do it. It was hard to get the show made. A lot of people said no. A lot of big networks said no. And I actually had almost given up. And then my agent called and he said, hey, you know, Hulu would really like to meet with you. And I was like, I'm not flying to L.A. again. I'm sorry. They said, no, no, they're really interested in you specifically. And I said, I won't. I'm not going to fly. And they said, do a, a Skype call at least. And I was like, OK, I'm just going to pitch the show that I actually want to do in the way that I want to do it. Because, you know, when you pitch different networks like CNN has a totally different model than, say, Netflix or, you know, Nat Geo or Apple TV. Those are all slightly different. So you want to tailor your pitch a little bit so that the network can see how it would fit into their other programming. But in Hulu's case, I didn't do that. I just like said exactly what I wanted the show to be. I didn't edit myself. I was cursing left and right out of potty mouth. And I just did it and they were very receptive. And it's not an accident that almost everyone on that call was female. Top Chef as a culture phenomenon has elevated and informed the public about the hard work required to become a great chef. Perhaps more importantly, the show has embraced the idea of diversity and inclusion in kitchen all over the world, bringing women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community to the forefront. 
the custodial of food heritage comes from women of color. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what region, what world you're in. It truly is the women that hold on to those recipes. It's passed down, and I never understood why when I turn on television, it's predominantly men, and why that you can only have one woman judge sitting on a panel of three. Why is that that I didn't understand? And I knew, and I saw on Top Chef, you as executive producer, I started moving that meter. We need to do more on Top Chef, but I'm really proud of how we have been able to move the needle. And that's also because Donine Arquinas, who is my showrunner on Top Chef, she's also a person of color. And she started when my first season, she was just a PA. And she worked her way up and I love her so much. And, you know, now because both of us are women of color, like I said, I'm hoping that everything that's in the ether will make the next season even more diverse. But that was a concerted effort, not only by me, but also by other people. You have to just do your best and try. You have to imagine a world that you want to exist sometimes because you have no choice. When Petma approached the creation of Taste the Nation, her point of view came from a very personal place to celebrate immigrant culture and forge new ground for women of color. With the show, she aligned herself with a team that's wanting to push boundaries and create something unique. As always, she remains a strong advocate for inclusion on both sides of the lens. I had a vision, I had a very specific vision for this show. And I will say that I'm really pleased at how people are reacting to the cinematography because not a single person had any experience, except for me, doing food. You know, nobody, my showrunner, my director of photography, my producing partner, none of them had done a food show. But it worked out in my favor because I could just create from scratch exactly what I wanted. And I love my DP, um, you know, Hunter is so, so great. And he and I have a tacit, tele- like a telepathy, you know, like an unspoken communication. I can feel him in my peripheral vision and I know how to turn so he can get the shot that I want him to get. And I wanted the show to feel super expansive because this country is so diverse and it's so beautiful. Just the natural landscape, you know, the difference between the sea islands in South Carolina and the Gullah Geechee episode to the Arizona desert, to the lush tropics of um, Hawaii. But I also, at the same time, wanted it to be really, really intimate, mm-hmm. you know, because is a very intimate thing and food is a very emotional thing and you never see that with food programming including my other show top chef and i wanted to see that because people have so many emotional ties and nostalgic uh feelings about food and i wanted to bring that out especially if you are living in another culture the way you pass on your culture to your children the fastest and the most often is through food Thank you so much to Lisa and Padma for the amazing dialogue and for continuing the work of spotlighting diversity and inclusion for communities often marginalized. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusite.com and follow me on my Instagram at usite88 for updates. 
Let's Talk is a production of ADA Faces. I'm your host, Yusai. Art director, Luis Jaime. And writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Swenjen. <laughs>